0: Because she was the one that got away. Because he asked you to wait by the phone. On the next Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present A Love Supreme. Amazing stories about the most mysterious bond of all. Do not miss it. This Snap Judgment podcast is supported by MailChimp. More than 5 million people and businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. And MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. More at MailChimp.com. Okay, so everybody has an epic love story because every love story is epic. You see, love is a human condition. You can't run, you can't hide, you're not too tough, too refined, too busy. So, because the birds are chirping and the bees are busy doing their bee thing, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present a love supreme
1: you know about that kind
2: of
0: love. Oh. Stories straight from the heart. My name is Glenn Washington. Sit back. Welcome. Because this is the quiet storm. Uh, this is Snap Judgment. <laughs> ever wondered if someone was right for you if you've ever asked the universe if she meant for you to be with that person over there in the corner eating corn chips right now we have got a story for you and to be fair to parents this next piece does contain references to that thing that consenting adults do with other consenting adults listener discretion is advised
3: It was October 4th, 2002. It was a Friday and uh, I had spent the night at my friend Dean's house. And we had known each other already for a couple of years, but had only been dating for a few months. And our relationship was very confusing to me. Dean wasn't the kind of guy that I thought I wanted. I had this whole list, you know, I I sat down and I made the list of sort of qualities that I admire in a person and who I want my ideal partner to be. And that person on paper was not Dean. And yet I couldn't seem to walk away. I remember waking up that morning in his bedroom and making love with him on his bed and... And even in the moment, (laughs) lying there thinking, I think that actually tops them all. And then I just wanted to get up. We had this plan to go hiking that day. We were gonna check out Charmley Park in Malibu. So I insisted that we get up. And I just felt really uncomfortable the whole time we're driving, going through all of these deliberations. Is this where I wanted to be? Is this who I wanna be with? I couldn't figure out what I wanted, but I needed to know and I needed to know immediately and I needed to know permanently. So we get to the park, and we find the trailhead, and we start walking. And the whole time that we're hiking, I'm continuing this internal debate. We spotted an oak grove, and so we left the trail, and we went into this oak grove. And I saw this impeccable tree. And I'd always climbed trees ever since I was little. and had never really stopped. Dean had his back to me, and I just started to climb. And when he turned around, I was... I don't know, 20, 25 feet up already. And I was standing in this tree and I, my left hand was resting on this little smaller branch. And Dean started telling this really long joke and I was very impatient <laughs> with this joke. <laughs> and I hear this loud crack. I knew as soon as I heard it, what had happened. I knew that the branch my hand was resting on had broken and I realized I'm gonna go down. <laughs> and that there is nothing I can do about it. If I had thought for a moment that I could have kept myself from hitting the ground, I would have fought. But it was so clear that there was nothing I could do, and I let go of everything. And all that noise in my head just went silent. And this, like, euphoria came over me. And I became incredibly interested in everything around me, like the leaves and the color of the bark. I had time to look at all of that. I had time to notice how glorious it felt. And then the planet shot up and hit me. It was the most unforgiving, unrelenting surface. It felt to me like the ground did not give a millimeter. And it hurt like hell to hit the ground. It was instantly incredibly difficult to breathe. And by that time, Dean had dropped down next to me and you know, was asking me if I was OK. And I said, where are my legs? And he was sort of like, what are you talking about? Right here. And I saw him reach out with his hand. And so I got curious, and I reached down myself where he had reached. And I felt this incredibly smooth and silken surface that I did not recognize. And I said, what is that? And the color drained out of his face, and he said, it's your leg. I could hear the sirens bouncing off the canyon walls on their way in, and I knew they were for me. And I was staring up at the leaves and the branches above me, hearing myself say everything that you need to know about your life. happening right now so pay attention I had broken my back and crushed my spinal cord so I had been instantly and completely paralyzed from the waist down on impact there it is the hardest part was having to admit that I had no sexual sensation My surgeon asked me to check if I had any. And I knew before he asked me that I had no sensation. But having to admit that to another person was much harder than just knowing in my own mind. And I think it represented the magnitude of what I was losing. And it was not just a little bit ironic. Here I had had... Literally the best sexual sensation of my life, what, four hours before that or something? And then I lost all sensation. I went to Craig Rehab Hospital in Colorado, um, a specialty hospital for spinal cord injury. And it was there that (laughs) truly there's nothing that brings home the reality of a spinal cord injury like being in a place where everyone has one and you start to realize the club you've just joined. And it's hard to stay hopeful. I didn't want visitors from home during that time. My friends would say, you know, should we come visit? And I would say no. And Dean too. I didn't want him to come. I would talk to him every day. And he even checked with my ex-boyfriend who knew me much better. And he said, just go, the ex. Just get on a plane and go don't listen to her. And Dean, I guess, feeling insecure about that advice, checked with me. And I said, absolutely not. That's the worst thing you could do. Don't you dare get on a plane and just come out here. But I think that um, what happened is what always happened between Dean and I, which is that his persistence eventually trumped my ambivalence. And so he flew in on a Monday night and I told him he couldn't see me until 10 a.m. on Tuesday. And That morning, Tuesday morning, I was put together. I was clean. I had my hair done. I had my bed raised up so that I could sit up fully. And the clock hit 10 a.m. on the nose. And he walked in the door. And I took one look at him,
2: and I started to cry. And I didn't want him to leave my side again. That was it.
3: I just wanted to stay with me. And every other night after that, he spent in my hospital bed with me. But I was so hungry for his touch and the safety of that, the familiarity of it, the hope of it, that my life could still be good, that there could still be something really beautiful and spectacular and golden about it. And so it wasn't a question, it wasn't a debate, there wasn't any discussion about it, it just happened. The next thing I know we were kissing and we just sort of figured it out. I think it was affirming that we were still alive and that that mattered, that you can lose really almost everything. But if you're still alive and you have each other, You still have more than you've lost.
0: Guess what? Leanna Strelkoff and Dean later married, and today they're the parents of Little Bitty Boy. That story came to us from Leah Tao's amazing podcast, Strangers, supported by KCRW's independent producer project. Find the link to the Strangers program on our website, snapjudgment.org. True love. Eternal love. Undying devotion. You've got all that. But what about true lust? In some cases, lust can be even more powerful than love, something Norma Wallace knew all too well. Snap Stephanie Fu has the story.
4: When Norma Wallace walked through the doors of the Blue Room, the entire nightclub turned and stared. She was flanked on both sides with the most beautiful women in New Orleans. Head high, she carelessly shrugged off her mink coat as she walked into the room. The waiter, obediently following her, scrambled to catch it. The legendary actor and singer Phil Harris was on stage. When he saw her, he dedicated his song to the Queen.
5: Down where they have those pretty queens keep a-dreamin' those dreamy dreams let sip that absent in New Orleans that's what I like about the South.
6: That summed it all up. She was the reigning queen of the French Quarter underworld.
4: That's Chris Wiltz. She's here to help me tell the story of Norma's reign which lasted from the 1920s all the way through the 60s. Here's Norma herself.
6: It was exciting. That's, that's it. The word is exciting. There was never a dull moment, and you can believe me when I tell you that.
4: This audio is not great, as it is quite old. Tapes of Norma recording her life story were found after she died. Chris Wilt listened to all of them and spent years researching her life.
6: Which is how I came to write the book, The Last Madam, A Life in the New Orleans Underworld.
4: Yes, Norma was a madam. But Norma didn't start out on top. She was born dirt poor in 1901, and she grew up begging for scraps of food. And through all that, she always knew that she was going to make something more of
6: herself. She understood that money bought her independence and freedom, so she decided that, like a man, she wanted to be able to make a lot of money, and the only way she knew to do that was selling sex. Only Norma never did want who she slept with to be dictated to her by anyone or anything. She did not want to be a prostitute. She wanted to be the madam. And so she was going to open her own house and become the madam of that house. And the
4: way she did that was by using men.
6: Norma wasn't beautiful in any classical sense of the word, but there was something about her that was magnetizing. Men fell at her feet. They fell in love with her, and they loved her forever. She had her choice. Norma chose famous men, rich men,
4: sometimes dangerous men, like Sam
6: Hunt. He was rumored to be part of Capone's group, and he was called Golf Bag Sam because he carried his machine gun in his golf bag. Nevertheless, she fell in love with him, and he with her. And he was wealthy from his life of crime, and he bought her a house at 1026 Conti Street. She furnished it absolutely gorgeously with golf bags, money, and then, of course, the money that she herself was making by thinking up all kinds of things, like the very first strip-teases that were going on in the quarter were happening at Norma's house up on the third floor.
4: Norma knew how to manipulate lust, and this made her very, very rich.
6: When the clock struck 7 o'clock every evening, she could feel a thrill in her body. This was the time that the action started every day. I used to wake up around noon and have my coffee and wonder, well now, wonder what this night's going to bring.
4: Norma ran a very classy house, which was all part of the business strategy. Posh clientele would bring in more money, and the cops would have a harder time shutting her down. But truth was, the cops weren't really after Norma anyhow. They needed her. In 1936, Norma did what policemen all across the country could not do. She set up and nabbed Alvin Karpis, the FBI's most-wanted bank robber.
0: Garbus was promoted to U.S. public anime number one.
4: The New Orleans Police Department got the credit and the commendation from President Hoover, and Norma got protection and mighty friends. And this was the most important thing to her, even more important to her than money, was power. Control over her own life, and for that matter, over New Orleans. In a time where women had barely earned their right to vote, Norma Wallace had most of Louisiana's elected officials
6: in the palm of her hand. Norma kept a book, the famous Madam's Black Book, that had all of her patrons listed by nickname. One of the mayors of New Orleans who was extremely thin was called Toothpick. These books, let's call them her insurance policy. If anybody threatened her, she could threaten them back. She had dates, times, things like birthmarks, the size of their... um, (laughs) Was it unusual, as big or small? Or did he have any marks on him?
4: The information also protected generations of Norma's girls. Norma loved and took great care of them, even long after they stopped working for her. She even mentored a couple of them into starting their own houses. But being in this business made long-term relationships difficult for Norma. She married five times, and several of her marriages and affairs ended because these men wanted her to become a housewife, close down the brothel, and cook. But nothing controlled Norma Wallace. And so she left, divorced all of them.
6: I couldn't make a go of it. Marriage wasn't for me. You know, when you're making money and you're running a whorehouse, you don't, uh, that makes you independent, makes you hard to get along with as a wife in the first place.
7: And
1: I'm mighty sorry to say, you're
6: nobody's sweetheart now. Is that so? Well,
8: I managed to get along somehow.
4: Norma had made a killing capitalizing on
6: beauty. Unfortunately, of course, beauty fades. And this is probably the reason that every man she married was younger than the next. She wanted to retain her own youth and beauty, and this was one way she could do it. If she was on the arm of a really good-looking young man, then she was still in the game. She had no trouble finding willing younger men. They said things like Norma had a body that was better than a 25-year-old, and that she was just one good-looking woman all the way.
4: Norma was in her 60s when she found her youngest, hottest, most ravishing man. She'd had her eye on him since he was a teenager. Now he was 22, and his name was Wayne Bernard.
6: Her weakness for young men, for youth for beauty, all of it came together in Wayne Bernard. He was 39 years younger than Norma, but she fell completely in love
4: with him, and they got married. Here's Wayne.
5: She was a beautiful person, and uh, everybody knew her, and everybody welcomed her with open arms, and just the type of person she was. She's Just a fantastic person. But were you happy? Uh, sure, definitely. I mean, it's, you know, we, naturally, I was working at Avondale Shipyard making, I think, $40 a week. And uh, whenever we'd go out, she'd put three or $400 in my pocket. And my God.
6: Norma was a rational woman. She knew this romance could not last. She knew that eventually Wayne was going to want to have his own family. He was probably going to want to have children. And she said early on that she was going to have to know when it was time to walk out. But Norma had moved Wayne and herself to Mississippi, away from New Orleans, to keep him away
4: from the temptation of younger women. She sacrificed her treasured connections with the city she loved and its smoky, sparkling ballrooms, to try and control Wayne.
5: And I guess I was missing some of the things like going to football games with a younger crowd of people. And yes, I was uh, being more attracted to younger women, sure. Wayne, she says, I know I'm a lot older than you. If it ever comes to the point to where you want to see other people, I can understand it. And well, she undoubtedly, no, she couldn't take it, undoubtedly.
6: And when Wayne began to drift and not come home night after night after night, um, one, one day she went into the kitchen she called her sister-in-law and she shot herself
5: it was devastating to me really that she would do something like that I thought for a while you know, you know what did I do it made me feel like I caused her to commit suicide you know I mean did I I don't know till the day I think of it really
4: I see it this way. Norma had lost her business, her husband, her influence. And so maybe it was then, alone, looking in the mirror, that Norma was forced to confront that there was one thing she was powerless against. Age. But, as always, nothing controlled Norma Wallace. And in her pride, Norma died how she had lived, trying to write her own destiny.
0: Thanks so much to Wayne Bernard, and a special thank you to author Chris Wiltz for sharing her knowledge with Snap. And if you think what you just heard was crazy, we just scratched the surface. Read Chris Wiltz's book, The Last Madam, for many, 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 many more raunchy, hilarious, and thrilling stories. That piece was produced by Snap Judgment's Stephanie Sue. Snap continues, the guy gets the girl, the girl doesn't get the girl, and the pearl squirrel goes on the hair curl. Kinda. When Snap Judgment, our love supreme continues, stay tuned. Hey, love. About hey. Hey, love. Making trips to the post office is becoming a thing of the past. You just don't need to do it anymore. Thanks to Stamps.com. You already know that going to the post office is inconvenient. Driving there, finding parking, waiting in line. What you probably didn't know is you're paying more for postage than you have to. Stamps.com is the better way. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, right from your computer and printer. Then, just hand it to the mailman. With Stamps.com, you'll get special postage discounts, You can't even get at the post office on first class, priority mail, international, and more. Never go to the post office again. And right now, there's a special offer for listeners of the Snap Judgment podcast. A no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in SNAP. That's stamps.com enter snap and happy mailing 97 percent water i don't know hey glenn you know every time we go to the pub for trivia night um, we get schooled right um and the more we lose the louder you get drosophila melanogaster well i've got the fix it's an npr podcast called ask me another it's got word games puzzles trivia of all sorts It's a rambunctious hour that blends brain teasers with comedy and music. Smog like gold, but as you know, dragons can't buy anything. So you wonder... It doesn't have to be like this, man. Find Ask Me Another on iTunes under podcasts. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and APR. It loves Supreme. Now, every great love story features two people fighting against the odds to bring their joy to fruition. Sometimes, though, the battle can't be won. A few weeks ago, we sent SNAP producers Anna Sussman and Pat Masidi-Miller clear across the globe to Burma, where they happened upon a love
7: story of epic proportions. This is the city of Yangon in Burma and I'm walking up a narrow cement staircase to the apartment of a man named Jimmy. He offers me a seat and a cup do, of tea. We want to
1: sit together, yes.
7: And he says, guess my age.
1: How do you think about my age?
7: Around 40?
1: 44 years.
7: He's 44.
1: Half of my life in prisons.
7: He said half of his life he's been in prison, as a political prisoner. He invited me here because he said telling his story has been dangerous, but he wants to talk now. His story began when he was a student in university. It was 1988, the year the democracy uprising began in Burma. This evening,
8: the situation
0: in Rangoon remains extremely volatile. Major demonstrations. Planned...
7: Students came together to protest the country's military dictatorship. Jimmy was a student leader. The rallies were dangerous. Our forces commander had declared that the army would take stern measures against protesters. Protesters risked imprisonment and torture. At some rallies, the military just opened a fire on the students.
6: But as many as 3,000 people may have been killed during last week's demonstrations in Burma.
7: But Jimmy was an activist.
1: So we just want democracy. We just want truth.
7: He would give speeches for thousands at mass rallies. At one point, he said he remembered looking into the crowd and seeing a high school student.
1: Green and white uniforms.
7: Still dressed in her green and white school uniform. And he remembered that girl in her uniform. She kind of stayed in his head. Even after he was arrested for his role in the protests and sentenced to 20 years with hard labor. The cells around him in the prison began to fill with other political prisoners as the democracy movement went on. After seven years inside, Jimmy heard about another new inmate, a young woman who was accused of organizing student protests. Her name was Neil Artane, and she was the very same girl that Jimmy had seen from stage, the one wearing the green and white school uniform. And now he was concerned because she was young and alone and he wanted to get her a message. So you could tell a guard to get her a message?
1: A few words, a few words. I could ask, uh, uh, is, is she fine? Is she well? Is she well? Yeah.
7: But Nilartain was not well. She had rheumatic heart disease. In the middle of the night, Jimmy could hear the female prisoners shouting for help.
1: At the midnight, someone shouted that guards, guards, Nilartain is ill, Nilartain is sick. I can hear the words uh, ill sickness, daily, daily daily, so I, I, I couldn't uh, suffer the, the, the sounds.
7: So Jimmy asked what the problem was.
1: Why, why 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 she's stiff sickness? We have to ask the authorities you know, you, you, you're torturing my sister. what you're doing to my sisters?
7: He called her his sister because they were brothers and sisters in this fight against the military dictatorship. Jimmy found out that Neil Artane was kept isolated from the other inmates.
1: She was very lonely, very lonely, ducknecks and silent at the night. You can hear the sound of crickets. So nothing, no one, no one, just only her. I thought that that is why she was ill.
7: Jimmy convinced the guards to let him meet her, to help her feel better. This, in a damp, dark prison cell, is how their romance blossomed. He didn't bring her candy or flowers, but he would bring her food and medicine, and they would talk about political strategies and great writers on democracy, things they both loved.
1: Let us say that when... We saw each other uh, for many times. Uh, we discussed many things, and we were more friendly than ever. More friendly mm. than ever.
7: Neil Arting got better with his company. Weeks became months, and months became years, and they kept visiting and talking, and eventually, Jimmy proposed.
1: Two years after we met, I proposed to her. Let's say that we fall in love with yes. Yasha.
7: But they couldn't get married in prison. All they could do was plan about the day they might be free. And then one morning, the guards came to Jimmy's cell with news.
1: The uh, prison authorities called us out of the cells. We were surprised. We were surprised. They told me that we were released.
7: Neil Artane and Jimmy were freed on the same day. She had been in prison for nine years and he for 16. They got married very quickly, within a year, because they knew they weren't actually free. They were democracy activists, so they were always at risk. They lived in this world where arrest and imprisonment were always lurking, always there. Like in every marriage, they promised to be together forever. But Neil Artane and Jimmy prepared to be apart.
1: I mean, that's... We'll never be apart, even though we're apart. We always cross each other, even though we're apart. We begin tonight with the top story, the death of freedom in a faraway
9: land. Bloody sandals on the streets were peaceful demonstrators.
7: When thousands of monks took to the streets in what would come to be known as the Saffron Revolution, Jimmy and Neil Artain were expecting a baby. Throughout
8: Myanmar, hundreds of thousands of people
7: took to If the they joined the protests, they risked losing each other, and their baby.
8: Such gatherings had
7: But what they wanted for their baby more than anything else was for her to grow up in a free country. So they put their hands over Nilartain's stomach, and asked for understanding.
1: Once she was pregnant, so I, I hold my my wife's what the stomach, and I I requested my baby in her womb. And so what did you request? Understand your parents because we may be imprisoned for the next times.
7: When their baby, named Sunshine, was four months old, Jimmy was arrested again. Neil Artane took the baby and fled into hiding.
1: She lived in the darkness with baby.
7: She hid in darkened apartments across the city. When the police came knocking, she would hush the baby, and the baby stayed quiet, tightly, Jimmy says, meaning still.
1: We thought that she knew, she knew everything. She stays silent, tightly. Stayed tightly.
7: Neil Tain was on the run for a year, and then she too was arrested and sentenced to 65 years in prison. This time, she and Jimmy were sent to prisons eight hours away from each other. Jimmy in a river valley, and Neil Tain high on the mountainside, and Sunshine stayed with her grandparents.
1: We could write the letters to each other too far. Far away.
7: Yeah, yeah.
1: but uh, we could get uh, the smell of our body from the letters.
7: Jimmy remembers having to get the scent of each other's bodies from letters. Three years into their 65-year sentence...
1: On 13 January 2012... The same day. same day. same day. same day.
7: They were both freed, on the same day. And this time it seemed different. Like their 20 years of sacrifice was beginning to pay off. Because the government was actually implementing democratic reforms. Hundreds of political prisoners were freed on that day. Newspapers were allowed to report freely. When Jimmy and Neil Artaine reunited, they celebrated for a moment. And then they went back to work. They traveled from village to village Giving workshops about the country's new transition to democracy. And in the first village they went to, they were hugged by complete strangers who were crying.
1: Everybody know about our story. When they met us, they hug and cry. Uh, We're wishing for your release, for your daughter, till now.
7: Even now, you're getting told? Yeah, sure, sure. People you don't know?
1: Strangers, strangers.
7: Their story had become a legend.
1: Let us see like that. The story was so very famous among our people. Very romantic story.
7: (laughs) Now, Neil Artein and Jimmy sit close together on a couch in their apartment in Yangon, the same city where they once hid. They finish each other's sentences (laughs) and laugh a lot. (laughs) A year ago, this interview would have been illegal but today they say they can speak openly, even in public. Neil doesn't speak English, but she listens and nods in understanding as Jimmy talks to me. And this is what she says about her daughter. Uh, Every parent worries about their children. Her parents worried for her when she was imprisoned, and when she left Baby Sunshine she worried. But they want their children to know what they call real freedom. It's still unclear if that freedom is here yet. Do you think you'll go back to prison again? For now? Yeah, what do you think about the future? Do you think?
1: Uh, we call prison is our second home. Everybody can be faced with tortures, handcuffs, and arrest for our conscience. Everybody say about freedom. I I have to share the teaching of our Buddha. True freedom is nirvana, nirvana.
7: He's saying nirvana. It might not come in this lifetime, but maybe in a future life.
1: Life, another life, life, another life, life, another life. For many years, finally, you will get true freedom. Never stop, never stop. Never stop.
0: That piece was produced by Anna Sussman and Pat Lissidi-Miller as part of the Global Story Project with support from the Open Society Foundations. In cooperation with PRX, the public radio exchange, we very much appreciate their support. You're listening to Snap Judgment, a love supreme. We'll be right back after this little tiny break. Stay tuned.
4: Support for Snap Judgment comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
3: Thanks for listening to Snap. There are lots of other NPR podcasts we think you would enjoy. For word games, puzzles, and trivia of all sorts, check out Ask Me Another. It's a rambunctious hour that blends brain teasers with comedy and music. Find Ask Me Another on iTunes under podcasts.
0: One two. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. We we'll proudly present our Love Supreme episode. And now, it is all well and good to love somebody. That's what all the songs are about. The problem, of course, getting them to love you back. Katie Mingle tells her story.
2: If I could assign an image to Mexico, it would be a human heart, beating, bleeding, ready to burst. If the US is gray or blue, Mexico must be red or orange, burning with emotion and ordering on gaudy. For example, on the show La Academia, the Mexican version of American Idol, the contestants sing on a stage surrounded by water. Dolphins leap into the air. At times, the singers become so overcome with emotion that they throw themselves into the water, still singing. And so when I think of Cynthia, my feelings float around in the landscape of Mexico, her name drawn out across the sky with airplane smoke letters, or sung with the dramatic swipe of some Latin-sounding chords on the guitar. Cynthia, I love that you don't love me. Cynthia, I'd walk through the desert to find you roses. Cynthia, everyone needs someone to dream about. Cynthia sold silver jewelry in Tepotzlan, which was a neighboring town to Cuernavaca, where I lived. Sometimes I would take the bus there and sit with her while she did this. To get to the bus, I had to make my way through the main market. I had to patiently wade through the long hallway of people selling batteries, shoes, belts, and alarm clocks. My body pressed up against a sea of other bodies. I had to go past the pirated DVDs, pushing all the way to the part that smelled like fresh basil and tangerines and sweat. The ticket cost 15 pesos. The ride was an hour long. Once I finally got there, I usually regretted going. Cynthia and I didn't have much to talk about, and sometimes I felt like I was bothering her. There were always men coming by just to flirt with her. A British guy came by once and bought some expensive earrings. He asked her about the book she was reading and acted really awkward trying to come up with things to say. What a loser, I thought. And then I realized I'd been sitting there for the last two hours, acting awkward, trying to think of things to say. And this is how it mostly went with us. 90% awkward, 10% wonderful. I would sit on the curb beside her, smoking, shifting my weight around, looking at my feet. I wanted to grab her and say, hey, I'm interesting, I'm funny. If you could know me in my language, you would like me. Around six, she'd pack up for the day and we'd ride the bus home together. Or she'd find some friends in town to hang out with. Once we rode on a moped with this hippie kid up into the hills of Te to his house. There were three of us on the moped and he was driving like a maniac up the dirt roads. Wild dogs were chasing us. I liked it anyway because Cynthia kept saying, hold me tighter. And we rode up into the lush green hills of the town up and up to where you could see the valley below and the clouds making storms above a blue-green sea. In his cinder block house in the mountains, the hippie kid put on reggae music and they talked and laughed at jokes I didn't understand. I sat awkward and inanimate in my beanbag chair, absorbing the array of psychedelic posters. Buddha with fractals and marijuana leaves fanning out behind him, Bob Marley hitting a spliff, It was comforting to know hippies had the same posters, no matter where you might be in the world. The boy heated up some tortillas in a small microwave, and we ate them rolled up with lime and salt. I thought he seemed annoyed that I was around. He probably liked Cynthia, too, but she treated him with the same flirtatious indifference as everyone else. Cynthia was friends with Jimena, the woman I lived with. That's how we met, and that's how we first kissed because himena forced us all into playing spin the bottle then later we all went to sleep me in my bed and cynthia in a different bed on the other side of the room when the lights were out and the room was dark and still she said to me in english good night good night cynthia i said back and i lay there wishing i could figure out a way to accomplish the impossible task of getting from my bed over to hers wondering if there was even the slightest chance that she wanted me there When suddenly, out of the hot darkness, she said to me, Katie, Ven." I went to her in her bed and we lay there, our faces close together, our legs entangled. She told me she liked kissing me in the game and then she kissed me again. We kissed again and again and again. And she said, I could kiss you forever and not get tired of it. But as it turned out, she could only kiss me for about two more weeks before she was pretty well over it. And I was left there so starry-eyed, finding myself writing her name inside of hearts during my Spanish lessons, taking the bus to Tepotzlan. She was such a mystery, so inconsistent. Sometimes on our way home on the bus, she'd hold my hand secret-like so none of the old cowboys and tired families could see. We'd talk quietly as the bus rattled through the blue dusk. Then other days, she'd stare out the window, cold and distant. Eventually, this ambiguity became too hard to bear. In another language, in another culture, I needed something to hold on to. I wrote her a letter in Spanish all about how I felt. When she read it, she looked at me and said, What the hell are you talking about? She really said it just like that, but in Spanish, and she laughed. Maybe I hadn't explained myself right in the letter. Then she stopped coming by. I didn't have a phone, and neither did she. I didn't know where she lived, so I couldn't find her. And so Cynthia left my life as quickly as she had come into it. And I'm sure she doesn't miss me, and I'm sure she doesn't often recall that night when we first kissed. How did I ever let that one slip away, is what I bet she doesn't think to herself, longingly. Fine, Cynthia, be that way. See if it stops me from thinking of you when I listen to the catchy, heartfelt anthems of Mexico, or when I daydream of your country so far away now with its blood-red heartbeat, where dolphins leap. I know it was me all along with my heart on my sleeve, so I'll be red and you be blue. But, Cynthia, everyone needs someone to dream about, even you
0: that story was written and produced by Katie Mingle with help from Snap Judgment's own Nick Vanderkolk a version of it originally aired on the show Resound which you can find at thirdcoastfestival.org Now then, sometimes we call Snap Judgment's Jamie DeWolf, the love doctor. And you're about to find out why.
8: When I first met Jamie, I was really closed off to a lot of people. I've seen that all the relationships that I had before took away from my sense of self and took away from my purpose. And when I met Jamie, I was really wary of that but also very interested in him.
9: I was incredibly cynical when I met Natasha, but she was a filmmaker and an artist who had this huge, big heart, and I started to believe that there was maybe hope. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe love could work.
8: The whole first year went by so quick. I worked on this project to give to him on our one-year anniversary, in secret, and in my room. And I hid it under the bed.
9: In our first year anniversary, and she gives me this huge book that she's made by hand.
8: And as soon as he looks at it, it seemed like he lost his breath.
9: Just completely speechless.
8: The front opens in the middle. It's got two doors that close in.
9: It had its own padlock on the front of it
8: and each page is textured with paint and paper mache and there's hidden pockets.
9: Those was of our entire relationship. It was amazing, I know nobody had ever given me anything like that before. Okay, now I'll be... So I'm flipping through this book, I get to the last page and she has a special surprise. Four envelopes. Her idea is that we're gonna write a letter to ourselves and then a letter to each other that's gonna be opened in exactly one year on that day.
8: I write a letter to myself. My letter was pretty encouraging, but also a little threatening.
9: It's like you're coaching the future you.
8: The letter I wrote to him was very thankful. It was full of gratitude.
9: And then I have to write my letter to her. So I decided to take the biggest gamble that I've ever taken in my life and try to be really hopeful that my future self would agree with me. (laughs) Otherwise, I was gonna have a problem.
8: The deal is that we padlock it, set it aside, and we won't open it up for a year.
9: Our second year was harder than our first year, and over that entire year, I kept thinking of the letter. I never forgot what I wrote. This is this countdown to the day when the me of the past is now gonna have to reconcile with the me of the future
8: a year from that day were in the same room at the same place.
9: We have the key. And we unlock it. And then we unseal the envelopes. First, we read the letters that we wrote to ourselves.
8: <laughs> I kind of felt sorry for him a little bit because it seemed like the Jamie from a year before was being a jerk.
9: I was like, you would better get your act together. You know, it's this long sort of fatherly checklist of all the things I should have done By this time.
8: When I read the one to myself, it was almost as if my best friend time-traveled. It was inspiring, but also kind of frantic and pushy.
9: And then we get to the letter that we wrote each other.
8: I was thanking him for the whole year. I was thanking him for all the changes we made together.
9: And then she opened up her letter.
8: Break the seal. Take out the piece of paper. For a split second, I'm a bit disappointed. Because it's a really short note. It wasn't even a full page, it was like a ripped up half a page It says, close your eyes and count to ten And I did, and I'm thinking, alright, well It better be a bigger note (laughs) But then I'm counting down
9: And when she opened her eyes
8: He is on one knee And he's got a ring And asks if I will marry him (laughs) I say yes he knew he wanted to marry me a year ago. That is very flattering.
9: <laughs> I've had male friends of mine say, How did you know you were going to be together in a year? Well, I didn't, you know. I, I wanted to be brave and take a leap. I was glad we landed where we did.
0: Jamie DeWolf and Natasha DeWolf still make art for each other and are partners in shows and films all over the Bay Area. That piece was produced by Mark Ristich. It's about that time. You've been listening to Snap Judgment, a love supreme. And what? You want to play it for somebody special right now? No worries. Full episodes, pictures, stuff, all available right now at snapjudgment.org. How can you be on Facebook and Snap be on Facebook and we're not even friends on Facebook? It doesn't even make any sense. Twitter, SnapJudgmentORG. Snap was produced by The Lovers. Please give a hand to Cyrano himself, the Uber producer,
8: Mark Ristich.
0: Serenader with D. Miller Stephanie Too Many Suitors Food Anna Heartbreaker Sussman and The Natural Julia DeWitt Renzo The Love Letter Gorio Nick Goldenheart Vanderkolk, and Lock Your Doors for Will Your Girlfriend is My Girlfriend Urbina Did you ever tell someone going to meet him at a restaurant, but then got to watching the football game with your buddies and kind of forgot. Well will never do that to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Much love to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange likes to gather public radio listeners in large auditoriums and pronounce the man and wife PRX.org. Now, you know, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, You could meet someone so wonderful, so special, so cosmic at the club. It doesn't matter that he asks you for your credit card and social security numbers instead of your digits. Because that's just how connected you are on a spiritual level. Yes, you could write it all down on a napkin and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is N.P.R.